before the sun had risen, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas to the governor's palace. The Jewish leaders would not enter the palace because their presence in a Roman office would defile them and cause them to miss the Passover feast. Pilate, the governor, met them outside. What charges do you bring against this man? If he weren't a lawbreaker, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Then judge him yourselves by your own law. Our authority does not allow us to give him the death penalty. All these things were fulfillment of the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the way that he would die. So Pilate re-entered the governor's palace and called for Jesus to follow him. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you asking me because you believe this is true or have others said this about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Your people, including the chief priests, have arrested you and placed you in my custody. What have you done? My kingdom is not recognized in this world. If this were my kingdom, my servants would be fighting for my freedom. But my kingdom is not in this physical realm. So you are a king? You say that I am king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the cosmos to demonstrate the power of truth. Everyone who seeks truth hears my voice. What is truth? Pilate left Jesus to go and speak to the Jewish people. I have not found any cause for charges to be brought against this man. Your custom is that I should release a prisoner to you each year in honor of the Passover celebration. Shall I release the king of the Jews to you? No, not this man. Give us Barabbas. You should know that Barabbas was a terrorist. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted thorny branches together as a crown and placed it onto his brow and wrapped him in a purple cloth. They drew near to him, shouting, Bow down, everyone. This is the king of the Jews. Listen, I stand in front of you with this man to make myself clear. I find this man innocent of any crimes. Then Jesus was paraded out before the people, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Here is the man. Crucify, crucify. You take him and crucify him. I have declared him not guilty of any punishable crime. Our law says that he should die because he claims to be the son of God. Pilate was terrified to hear the Jews making their claims for his execution. So he retired to his court, the Praetorium. Where are you from? Jesus did not speak. How can you ignore me? Are you not aware that I have the authority either to free you or to crucify you? Any authority you have over me comes from above, not your political position. Because of this, the one who handed me to you is guilty of the greater sin. Pilate listened to Jesus's words. Taking them to heart, he attempted to release Jesus, but the Jews opposed him, shouting, if you release this man, you have betrayed Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king threatens Caesar's throne. After Pilate heard these accusations, he sent Jesus out and took his seat on the place where he rendered judgment. This place was called the pavement, or Gabbatha in Hebrew. All this occurred at the sixth hour on the day everyone prepares for the Passover. Look, here is your king. Put him away, crucify him. You want me to crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. 
Pilate handed him over to the soldiers, knowing that he would be crucified. They sent Jesus out, carrying his own instrument of execution, the cross, to a hill known as the place of the skull, or Golgotha in Hebrew. In that place, they crucified him along with two others. One was on his right and the other on his left. Pilate ordered that a plaque be placed above Jesus's head. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Because the site was near an urban region, it was written in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, so that all could understand. Don't write the King of the Jews, write, he said, I am the King of the Jews. I have written what I have written. God, I thank you for the power of your scripture, for its ability to transform us, God, and confound us and inspire us. And God, I thank you for the unexpected coming, the unexpected sacrifice, and the unexpected reign of your son, Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Today, we're going to be talking about expectations versus reality. I am a, a chronic planner. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I plan out is what am I going to eat today? Because that's at the top of my priority list. <clears throat> and then I plan out what am I going to do at work today? What am I going to say in that really difficult conversation that I have coming up? What am I going to do with my family tonight? What am I going to do in my free time? What am I going to watch on Netflix? And then when am I going to go to bed? And I plan my day meticulously. And I can't stop. Like it's just a running thing in my head all day long. And then at the end of the day, I look at how my expectations butted up against reality. And, and then I think about all the things that I need to do different tomorrow. Expectations versus reality. I find a lot of tension in my life because what I expect and what I plan often doesn't happen. <laughs> and so, and, and that frustrates me. And it, and it makes me want to try to fix things and control things. And it's not always the most healthy rhythm. And so I have to constantly remind myself what the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 19, 21. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Do any of you feel that today? Many are the plans in your heart and in your mind, but thank goodness I'm not in charge of the world and that ultimately when things don't go the way that I wanted them to or expected them to, the Lord's purpose still prevails. One of the things I have to constantly remind myself, and this verse is a good reminder of it, is that because we have a God who loves us, because we have a God who cares about us deeply and wants to be in relationship with us, because we have a God of all creation, the Lord's purpose prevails and my reality is better than I ever expected it to be. I have to let go of all the plans in my heart and say, God, you are good, and reality, no matter if it goes the way that I wished it would or not, is better than I expected. 
I saw this in a very real way these last couple weeks as we sent a team over to Ethiopia. It was a super stressful week for me for a variety of reasons, a couple of which are we're still in a pandemic and in Ethiopia, that's not a good thing. They have no oxygen in country in any of their hospitals, things like that. There's also this little thing, it's a civil war. Um, and that's not always ideal to send people into. And so, and so it was kind of a stressful time to send the team over. But the thing that stressed me out more than anything was that I wasn't going to be there. So I couldn't be in control. You see, we decided that my, my intern, now resident Kendra Michael from my team, that she was going to lead this trip. She's had two years as my intern. She's a, she just started two years as a resident with me. And then at the end of that two years of residency, the expectation is we'll send her to Ethiopia full time. So it just seemed like a good time, kind of at the end of her, resi- at the end of her internship, beginning of her residence, residency to send her over. And so as we're talking about the trip, I say, you know what, Kendra, I really, I want you to lead this VBS trip. I said, I'll just go and I'll kind of just be there, but you lead it. And she turned to me in my office and she said, am I leading the trip or not? And I said, well, yeah, of course you're, I just, I literally just said it. I want you to lead the trip. And she goes, well, if I'm leading the trip, then I decide who goes and you're not. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm your boss, like young lady. Um, But she, she said, Nathan, she said, if you go on this trip, I know you. And if something difficult happens or there's some kind of challenge, you're just going to want to step in and control things. She goes, and I won't get the experience of really leading and I won't get to grow in it. So I said, okay, you're going without me. But I am sending my wife because I want like eyes and ears on the ground. But still, I won't be there. And so we planned the trip meticulously. We spent months, hours every week going over all the details. Who's going to go, what they're going to do, what's the schedule of the VBS, what supplies do we need, plan, 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 plan. And the Lord looked at all of our plans and he laughed. The reality was almost nothing about this trip went the way that we had planned it. Some people we really wanted to go weren't able to. We actually had two people not be able to go on the trip because they tested positive for covid Five days out from the trip, we had to completely replan our vacation Bible school, which was fun because we already had all the supplies packed and distributed to the team members. Every step of the way, things changed. And yet, when my expectations butted up against reality, we found time and time again that the Lord's purpose prevailed and that the reality of what God wanted to do through this team was so much bigger than anything we had ever imagined with all of our planning. The team was blessed beyond measure and exactly the right people went. The Ethiopian staff that worked alongside them, I've never seen relationships bond like that. And and they're, they're gonna be friendships that last for years. And the biggest thing for me is, of the 600 kids that we have enrolled in our school in Hosanna, 550 of them participated in the Vacation Bible School. And I truly believe that that school will never be the same because those students spent a week learning about Jesus, learning how to use their scriptures and their Bibles, and learning how to worship. That school will be transformed because of this week and because the Lord's purpose prevailed. My favorite story from the trip, though, comes at the end, the very end of the trip. Uh, They get a call on the last day. Ethiopian Airlines tells them, hey, the flight's going to leave three hours early. Like, when does that happen? Early. Like, you never go to the airport and it's like, oh, my flight already left. It was early. Like that. So three hours early. So they scramble. They're packing all their stuff. Nobody gets to take showers or eat dinner. They get to the airport. They run. There's actually three security checkpoints in Addis Ababa, so that's super fun. They run all the way to the gate. They get there. They get on the plane. 
And as I begin to think, they have this 16-hour time window now where I can't talk to them. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to plan something nice for them. Uh, because what, was, what originally the plan was, they were going to have a seven-hour layover. But now that the plane left three hours early, their seven-hour layover turned into a 10-hour layover. And I was willing just to leave them in the airport for seven hours, but 10 was a bridge too far for me. And so I said, what can I do to really bless this team? They were so flexible, so amazing this week. And so I start looking at different options, and I come up with this. I said, you know what? There's a Hilton really close to the airport in D.C. I'm going to get them a couple rooms at the Hilton. They can do some spa day stuff. They can shower. They can nap. They can hang out in the lobby. There's a really nice restaurant there. I was like, they are going to be so appreciative of me and all my planning. I know, I was ready for the glory. To Nathan be the glory. Thank you. And so the plane lands and Kendra gets on her phone. She calls me. She says, we're here in D.C. I say, awesome. I got this great plan. She hears it. She's like, oh, the team's going to love it. My expectations are really high. She goes to the team and says, Nathan's got this great plan. What do you guys think? And they said, you know what? I feel like we just need to stay at the airport. I'm like, what? No, I have these great plans and expectations for you. You served so well this week. Please let me bless you. And they say, no, there's something about it. We just feel like we need to stay at the airport. We don't want to worry about security. We, we want to be good stewards of Central's money. And so they end up, I said, fine, you do you then. I'm like, I've washed my hands of you. Enjoy yourselves. <laughs> And so they find a terminal that's not being used, some seats at a gate that's not being used. And, and they go and they, they pull out their guitar that they have with them and they begin to worship. And if I'd have been with them, I'm the kind of person that's like, guys, can you keep it down? Like, we don't want to bother people. Like, you know, like I, we don't want to be a bother. That's always me. I, I, I actually won't return clothes that don't fit me because I don't want to bother the sales associate a second time. Like, that's how much I don't want to bother people. But Kendra's there, and Kendra doesn't mind bothering people, and she loves worship. And most of the people that were on the team were part of Paul's worship team. And so they were like, let's sing. And so they just start jamming, like worshiping the Lord in this airport terminal at the end of this trip, saying, thank you, God, for all that you've done. And people began to come up. And not to complain, but to worship with them. And so they begin to gather a crowd. And then when there's a pause, people begin to come forward. There was a young lady who was just starting out in her, in her uh, job as a lawyer. And she was talking about how tough it is to be a Christian in that profession. And he said, would you pray for me? And they laid hands on this young lady and they prayed for her. And another lady came forward and said, it's been two days of travel nightmare. And I'm just so stressed out and so discouraged. Would you pray for me? And they prayed for her. And over and over again, they were able to bless people on a 10-hour lay over in D.C. My expectation was I was sending this team to Ethiopia to do a VBS and their work was done, so why don't I bless them? But luckily this team listened to God and they realized something that hadn't fully clicked with me is that we are not just Christians, we are not just on a mission when we're on the mission trip, but it's every day and in every circumstance and even during our layovers that the Lord is the Lord of our lives, so let's see what he might do through us. And so God had something really neat planned, and it blew me away that maybe I didn't send this team to Ethiopia ultimately to do a VBS. Maybe I sent them to Ethiopia so they could have a 10-hour layover in D.C. and worship God with some total strangers and pray, pray prayers over them. Expectations versus reality. We see the tension of expectations versus reality in today's passage that Haley was reading for us. Um, you've got the Jews, and they have hundreds of years of expectations built up in their mind about what the Messiah and the King that God will send them should look like. There's all these Old Testament prophecies that say, I'm going to send you another King in the line of David. I'm going to send you a Messiah to free you and to lead you. 
And so in their minds, they had built up, this was going to be a king like David, and he was going to be mighty, he was going to be a warrior, he was going to build an army, and he was going to drive out our enemies. And so in their minds, they just knew now was the time. They hated the Romans, they were ready to throw off their shackles, and they said, this great and mighty king is going to come, we look forward to Messiah, and that was their expectations, and the reality was God sent them Messiah, but he looked very different than anything that they thought or planned. God sent them Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, one of the, one of the gospel writers shared a story where someone interacts with Jesus and they say, what good thing could ever come out of Nazareth? Like it was just a backwater, like, like you know, just, it, it was like, I guess, you know, whatever small town in South Dakota that you like to make fun of, it was whatever that was. That was Jesus's equivalent of where, where he grew up. And so they thought nothing good could come from there. And so that was strike one against Jesus. Then, instead of like learning the sword or, or talking about revolution or building an army, Jesus decides to wander the countryside, talk about love and peace and relationships, share stories with people, heal lepers, like touch lepers. That's really gross. The people that Jesus began to build up around him were fishermen and tax collectors, and sinners, and prostitutes. He was the exact opposite of the expectation that they had in their mind, and though the reality of what God wanted to bless them with was so much better than anything they could have imagined, they just couldn't drop their expectations, and it drove them to rage, such that they dragged Jesus before Pilate, their hated enemy, and said, we can't kill him with a violent enough death. The only thing we could do to Jesus is stone him. And we're so angry, that's not public enough, that's not brutal enough, and so we're bringing him to you, crucify him. We get this picture of the tension between expectations versus reality. Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this. Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." I can tell you no Greek or Roman person would ever imagine that this was something that God would do. If you read the the stories about the Greek and Roman pantheons, gods were all about themselves. They were self-serving. If they ever did come down to earth, it was because they were looking for a girlfriend or they wanted something from humankind. It was never, I'm here to serve, I'm here to sacrifice, I'm here to die. They expected gods to be selfish. They expected gods to want to be served. They expected gods to use their power for their own advantage. And yet our God used his power for our advantage. Our God humbled himself and walked with tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and prostitutes. Our God touched the leper, healed the blind and the lame. Our God became obedient even unto death. God sent us a king, but that king did not look like what the world expected. That king was willing to suffer and die for his subjects. 
And so in our story today, on the one side, you have this really crazy phrase that I think is one of the most jarring phrases of all of scripture. You get the chief priest saying, we have no king but Caesar. These were the guys that were supposed to uphold the law. These were the guys that were supposed to point people towards Yahweh. These were the guys that were supposed to lead Israel back to God. And they stand in a Roman court and say, this Messiah, this person that God has sent us, this Jesus of Nazareth is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. We want power. We want control. We want things to work the way that we imagine they should work. And on the other hand, in one of the greatest turnarounds in history, you have Pilate. Pilate, who loved judging people. Pilate, I mean, the Romans, they enjoyed brutality. It's why the Jews brought Jesus to him. You've got Pilate, and he sees this criminal come into his courts, and he's expecting, all right, what's today going to be? Am I going to flail him? Am I going to beat him with rods? Like, maybe we'll get a crucifixion. Like, he's probably imagining that as he sees Jesus come in. And yet, the more he talks to Jesus... The more he interacts with Jesus in the story, the more convinced he is that this man is who they say he is and this man is innocent. And so time and time again, he comes out and he goes, guys, I've talked to him. There is nothing here. This man is innocent. This man is true. There's something about this man. And by the end of the story, Pilate, who has a king who is Caesar, says, this is your true king. I have written what I have written. I have no king but Caesar. Jesus is king. That's not just a choice for the people in our story today. That's a choice for us. Do I love and serve my own expectations, my own desires, my own wants, my own, the world's idea of what power looks like? Or do I love and serve a Jesus who's willing to sacrifice and die. Who am I putting in control of my life? Paul writes about this in the book of Romans. He says, it's really simple. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, the king of your life, all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is king. Believe and confess. That's the choice we have to make. Do I continue to strive after my own plans and my own expectations, or do I begin to align my heart with God's purpose? See, the tension that most people feel in life is that they try to live their lives, or maybe not their whole life, but pieces of their lives after their own plans and their own expectations. But what the Proverbs writer promises us is ultimately that doesn't matter, God's purpose will prevail. And so the scriptures plead with us, drop the kingship of your own life and instead give it to Jesus. But there's some implications to that because Jesus's kingdom is kind of this upside down weird thing. And we see that mostly in the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest examples, beginning with the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter five, it says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, right now, there's, Paul mentioned it, there's some really devastating stuff going on in Afghanistan, and I hurt for those Afghani Christians. But I know that they got up today, and they went to church, 
And they worshipped knowing that they might be dragged into the streets and beaten and even killed. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. That's actually kind of hard to live out, isn't it? Especially in our society, because those things are so counterculture to the culture we have here in America. To say, I don't need control, I don't need power, I don't need security. Instead, I will trust the purpose and the plan of the Lord and I will live my life in meekness and in righteousness. And if I get persecuted, I just say, praise God, thank you for what you're going to do. And I look forward to heaven with joy and hope in my heart. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord. And I want to narrow down even more. I want to focus even more on that. What does that look like in your workplace? What does it look like in your school for you to be willing to be persecuted because Jesus is the king of your life? What does it look like in your family to say, I'm going to live righteous even when it's not popular because I want people to see what it looks like when I've aligned my life with Jesus. What does it look like in your life to put Christ on the throne of your heart and to say, in this moment, I'm going to be meek and I'm going to be poor of spirit and I'm going to say, Jesus, you reign. What does that look like on a practical level for you to make Jesus king of each and every part of your life? For me, uh, one of the things that, that I really struggle with uh, is anxiety. Um, and you might can tell by me talking about how much I'm a planner I am. Uh, I struggle with anxiety, specifically like when, when my day didn't go the way I planned or that conversation didn't go the way I planned. I lay in bed at night some nights and I begin to spiral. I begin to think about all the things I could have done differently and all the things I have to do the next day to make it right. And if I didn't have Jesus, I would be miserable. If I didn't have Jesus, I might be locked away somewhere because it, my mind will not stop. But I do have Jesus. And I'm not perfect yet. I wish, like the expectation I think when I became a Christian is, you know, I read stuff like, you know, you're going to be a new creation and there's going to be the transforming of, of your mind, the renewing of your mind. I think I read stuff like that early on and I was like, okay, God, fix it. <laughs> Better. I'm, I'm new. And, and when I wasn't new, I actually like rededicated my life like 17 times like in high schools because I was like, maybe I didn't do it right the first time. <clears throat> But what I realized is my expectations were false and my youth minister was a bit, and 90s Christian culture was a bit to blame for all that kind of stuff. What the reality is, is that Jesus says, I am here with you. And that when I find myself spiraling, like he reaches out a hand and he squeezes mine and he says, be calm. And he gives me passages of scripture like 1 Peter 5, 7, which says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so I find when I'm spiraling, I have to remember that verse. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so I take that specific piece of anxiety and I try to give it to him. And I take that other piece of anxiety and I try and I find myself starting to calm. And then I have this thing, it's called the Jesus prayer that I like to say. I say, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so for me, One of the practical ways that it looks like when I lay down my plans and I align them to the heart of God and his purpose for my life and for this world is that I cast my cares upon him and I say, God, you promised peace. Show me your peace. And I take a deep breath and I allow myself to go to bed. That's in a very small, real way what it looks like for me to have Jesus in my life. And I know that there are people in my relational world who are anxious too. I know that there are non-Christians out there that I care about in my family and in my friend groups and probably not at work because I work here at Central Church, but in your work maybe, that, that struggle with this too. And so one of the things that I need to challenge myself to do is to not keep those stories of Jesus' kingship in my life to myself, but instead to begin to frame those stories in a way that when I see someone struggling, I can say, I struggle with that too. Can I tell you what's helped for me? Can I tell you about what Jesus has done for me in that area? You see, we here at Central Church, we rewrote our mission statement not too long ago, and it says, Central Church exists to help you share the love of Jesus with your relational world. And I believe that one of the best ways you can do that is to begin to frame those moments in your life where you've made Jesus king and the outcomes of those moments, begin to frame them in such a way that you can share those stories with people. I think one of the best things that you could do is to look at like the conversation between Jesus and Pilate and our story today and say, how can I begin to have spiritual conversations with people in my life, natural conversations with people in my life so that they can begin to see that God makes a real impact. If I was to poll my non-Christian friends and I asked them, what do you think it means if someone wants to evangelize you or someone wants to share the good news of Jesus with you or someone wants to tell you about Jesus? Most of the non-Christians I know, I think this is what they'd say. I think somebody's about to tell me I'm going to hell. I think somebody's about to tell me about how bad I am and all the ways I'm sinning and the things I need to change in my life. I think somebody's about to throw a bunch of scripture at me from a book that I don't care about. In a real honest moment, if I could get the non-Christians in my life to tell me what it would mean if I said, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, I think that's their expectation. And I think they would tense up if I said, hey man, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I share the gospel with you? The reality of the gospel though is that Jesus is good news in my marriage. Jesus is good news in my workplace. Jesus is good news as I try to raise my kids well and love them well. And if I can share those stories, we can begin to break down barriers and chip away at walls. And I am not good at this traditionally. Uh, and I know, like, I, so I, here's the, I'll be honest with you, it's two years in, so they're probably not going to fire me. When I took the job as the outreach evangelism missions guy here at this church, I was like, I'm not very good at evangelism or outreach. I should probably figure this out. And so I began to study and I began to read and I began to talk to experts and pray. And we did it this uh, last spring. I actually wrote some material, it's called Live Sent. 
Uh, and it's basically my way of trying to say, how do I talk about Jesus without being cringy? How do I talk about Jesus in a way that really impacts people's lives? How do I share the stories of what God has done for me? Uh, and so we came up with that stuff. We ran the class, and here's some testimonies from some of the people. Through the Live Sent class, I was so um, struck by the way that God really showed me how easy sharing his story is. About two years ago, I was standing at the bedside of my brother as he died. And I don't know what his relationship to God was. And I don't want to fail the rest of my family. I really want to be prepared to answer questions if people ask of me. And I want to be able to show other people in my life what God has done for me. First Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be prepared to give an account of the hope that you have in Him. We need to know our testimony and how to share it. We need to know how to handle the gospel presentation in a way that people can understand. It's incredible to see how God is working in other people's lives. As, as a believer, as a Christian, it's so important to reach out to others. And that doesn't mean that you have to go around the world to do that. That means reaching out to the people that you're already interacting with and having deeper conversations is something that we're called to do as Christians and something we should be doing. We took issues that are contemporary, like the COVID-19 issue. People are fearful of death and fearful of getting sick. That's an opportunity to share our testimony and to open a door to the gospel. It really gave us an opportunity to discuss the ideas about what God has done in our lives. I feel so much more ready to be able to talk to people. God has equipped me with what I need to go and be Jesus to others and to evangelize to them, and I don't have to be afraid. You don't need to have extensive Bible knowledge. You don't need to have a theology degree. You don't have to be a pastor to make a difference. Reaching out to people and telling them the good news of Christ is as easy as having a conversation. And LiveScent really just does a great job of giving you the right questions, the right materials that you need to start being able to do that and having those conversations. So what about you? When you think about Jesus is my king, is that something that you've submitted your life to? Or are you still holding on to a little power and control and expectations over here? If you're still holding on, I want to challenge you today to lay it down and to submit your life to him. We're going to have some people coming up here with yellow lanyards in just a little bit, and they'd love to talk with you or pray with you. If maybe today you just say, I'm tired of carrying the burden of my expectations and my control. I need Jesus. If you're here today and you already have Jesus, but maybe you've never thought about framing your story or how Jesus impacts all the little parts of your life, we'd like to help you do that. Whether it's over coffee or at this Live Scent class, which we're doing September on Thursday nights, um, we wanna help you share the love of Jesus with your relational world. We wanna help you come to a deeper understanding of what it means for Jesus to be your King in each and every part of your life. And so I'd love to talk with you about that. Or maybe you already do all those things. And so my challenge for you today is, if you've already framed the story in your mind, you've made Jesus king of your life, then start telling people about it. 
because this world is a mess and it needs Jesus. We no longer need to be in control. We need our King of Kings. You pray with me. God, I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for what you've done in so many in this room's life. God, I thank you for the stories that we have of redemption, God. I pray that you will continue to help me set down my expectations and trust your purpose and your reality. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're here today and you have some prayer requests, we love to be praying for you. And so I take your bulletin, write them down, tear it off, drop that in the gray boxes on the wall. Also, if you have any updates to your information, you can put that there or your offering on the way out. Like I said, there'll be some people up here to pray with you. Um, As we uh, leave now today, I want you to stand and I want to say a blessing over you before we go. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever you go. May God watch over you in the trenches and on the heights and in the mundane. May he be the Lord and King of your life. Go in peace. Amen.